You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Tom Boyke, a friend and colleague. He's the director of the Council on Foreign Relations Global Health Program, and he's a senior fellow there for Global Health Economics and Development. Two years ago, he was the author of Plagues and the Paradox of Progress, Why the World is Getting Healthier in a Worrisome Ways, a really sterling and groundbreaking piece of work that we were able to uh, celebrate at that time, and it remains a very important piece of work. Today, we're here to talk about a task force that Tom was involved in directing, Council on Foreign Relations Task Force, titled Improving Pandemic Preparedness, Lessons from COVID-19. It was co-directed by former HHS Secretary Sylvia Matthew Burwell and former Homeland Security official Francis Fragos Townsend. And Tom shared co-directing responsibilities with CFR's Stuart Patrick. Tom, thanks for joining us today and congratulations. This is an important piece of work, an impressive assembly of diverse experts, many of them common friends. I'm impressed that you could move so quickly to pull this group together and come up with a comprehensive and broad, very detailed piece of work, very constructive. So congratulations on that. I'm going to ask you if you could just open up for us by just walking us through quickly the origin and mandate. What was your intent in pulling this group together at this moment in time in the middle of a pandemic? And what are the major findings and recommendations? And along the way, you might make some reference to We've got the independent panel just getting started, formed by the World Health Assembly, independent panel on pandemic preparedness response. We've got the Lancet Commission. We've got various things floating out there. We know in the Ebola era, post-Ebola, their proliferation of many, many studies, many of them converge and build on a sort of common set of conclusions and point us oftentimes towards all sorts of institutional innovations. So thanks so much, Tom, for being with us and over to you to sort of walk us through and then we can get into a more detailed conversation around some of the specifics. Great. Well, thank you so much, Steve. It's a pleasure to speak with you as always and to interact with uh, CSIS and colleagues. In terms of the broader remit of the task force, the task force was motivated by the observation that while people have described the current pandemic as a once in a hundred year international crisis, there's no reason why that should be so. The next pandemic could uh, emerge at any time and be worse. So it's incumbent on us to take the lessons from the current pandemic for taking those on board to observe where we can improve in future waves of the current pandemic, but also how to better prepare for the next one. So that was the remit of the task force. In terms of its launch around the current task force, it's my understanding that it at this point is the the first both bipartisan and nonpartisan, bipartisan in its membership, nonpartisan in the exercise to take a look at the lessons of the current pandemic and what they might mean for future pandemics. Obviously, we stand on the shoulders of all the great reports that have come out in the past 
in looking at the U.S.'s engagement on pandemics. And I do want to acknowledge here the tremendous uh, effort that uh, you led at CSIS last year on pandemics as well. So we had we had good background reading to to help form our thinking in this effort. So the pandemic's main takeaways are, again, that a future pandemic could uh, emerge at any time. Pandemics aren't random. Outbreaks occur regularly and can evolve into an epidemic or uh, a pandemic. Uh, could be more costly and uh, spread more easily than the current one. The second observation, headline observation we made, is that preparedness and readiness mattered in this pandemic. Countries have done quite differently in uh, responding to this pandemic. And the fact that preparedness and uh, readiness has mattered in this pandemic suggests that there's opportunities to invest ahead of the next one to avoid some of the outcomes we have seen here today. So I'll walk you through uh, very quickly some of what gets us to our findings. Uh, first, the task force is relatively uh, blunt on the fact that China in the early days of this pandemic was not transparent, uh, was slow to report cases and to share material information. And that failure to report in a timely manner and uh, share material information contributed to the spread nationally and internationally of this virus. The report is also, I think, hard-nosed but fair vis-a-vis -vis the World Health Organization, where it points out the World Health Organization has done much for which they deserve uh, commendation in this crisis, in particular in coordinating the international response in low- and middle-income countries, in terms of uh, helping drive forward the scientific research of potential countermeasures, but particularly early in the crisis, there are areas in which their performance did not improve the circumstances. Uh, namely, WHO, by praising China, didn't help matters and was, it's fair to say, was a week late in declaring an international public health emergency of international concern. That said, from that point on, all nations were dealt the same hand and some of some nations played that hand more strongly. The U.S. is not among them. You know, this is a report that, as, as you point out, it's, it's an early report. It's coming in the midst of this ongoing drama uh, globally. And I'm struck by the, by, by the temperate language throughout the report. Very careful to use fairly muted terms in characterizing the United States, which is described as deeply flawed, unforced errors, blame shifting, China language fairly careful, flawed at best in IHR compliance, what you just said about WHO. I very much appreciate hearing that. It is very balanced and certainly we need to have many of these expressions in a sort of dispassionate and careful and balanced way. But tell me why so mild and careful in describing this catastrophe which when you read the newspapers every day characterizes certainly the Trump administration and many other governments as basically having brought forward catastrophic outcomes. So on the outcomes, I think the report is blunt about them being catastrophic. 
and I think quite clear about it being the worst uh, disaster in many decades for the United States. So from that standpoint, in terms of the outcomes, I think the report is quite clear. Vis-a-vis China, World Health Organization, and the U.S., the report is intended to be fair, honest, but also constructive about where are the areas to improve in the future. So China, as you said, the report calls out China as its compliance with its international treaty obligations were at best flawed. Uh, It is honest about precisely where those flaws occurred. It also points to the evidence about what the consequences of those flaws would be. On the World Health Organization side, I do think the situation is balanced. The fact that we haven't seen internationally, uh, particularly in the poorest nations that are the most dependent on the World Health Organization for their international response, we have not seen to date the disaster that many expected in this pandemic is in part due to the work that WHO has done on international coordination. The other element on WHO side that's worth emphasizing, of course, is it's a membership organization. And I think it's Richard Holbrook, if I recall correctly, who used to point out that blaming the UN or the World Health Organizations for its flaws was like blaming Madison Square Garden for the performance of the Knicks. This is a element to some degree that in terms of limited authorities and resources, the report is quite blunt that the fault for that lays at the feet of member states. On the U.S. side, I think actually I'm proud of the report in terms of how it assesses its performance in that it does assess it at every level of government and points out it calls for a review of CDC. It does not shy away from identifying CDC's flaws. In this instance, it talks about in fairly blunt terms what has happened at the White House, but also points out that those failures occurred at state and local levels as well. Democratic and Republican alike. So I think for a bipartisan committee, the report I think is 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 accurate. But it is is true that it is meant to be about encouraging actors to move these recommendations forward. So it is meant to be constructive. Thank you, Steve. Tom, I, I totally get what you're saying. A bipartisan report meaning to move the ball forward, meaning to be constructive. But This reminds me, when you talk about the next pandemic, it reminds me of a famous book that our colleagues Dan Benjamin and Steve Simon wrote, The Next Attack, about terrorism. And they talked about what is going to be the next attack post 9-11. There was real urgency to that book. There was real urgency to the work that we did after 9-11 to prepare for the next attack. Do you think there's enough urgency right now in working towards thinking about what the next pandemic is. I know we're not through this current one, but is there enough urgency? So I don't think there is sufficient urgency on the next uh, pandemic. I think one thing that the report is quite clear about, and you know, for many, many years, the way people have looked at pandemics is that it's a cycle of crises and response. The reality of the situation from a funding perspective is that pandemic uh, preparedness funding as a share of global health spending has never amounted to more than 1% ever. Funding for states in terms of pandemic preparedness has actually declined relatively consistently since 2005. We've had 
in that time, multiple pandemics, not as deadly as this one, of course, but we had H1N1, we've had epidemics, Ebola in West Africa. We, of course, had SARS, which many people compare to a bullet whizzing by the head in terms of uh, the potential for damage that pandemic could have done. We have never seen a response internationally. So the reason why we wrote the report now is to catalyze that, because in some ways it's like the conversation we have about gun control, where everyone says now is the wrong time to talk about gun control after a shooting. And the reality is, if you don't talk about these things in the midst of them and take the lessons that are able to be learned, that you don't catalyze that response. And certainly 10 months into this pandemic, we have a pretty good idea of what the major failures were that contributed to it being as devastating as they are. No doubt we will learn more in the in the coming months, but there's enough here for us to move forward now. But I completely agree with you. There isn't enough urgency, and hopefully our report can provide some of that. Tom, do you think that we're going to head inevitably towards a 9-11 style commission in the United States, given the gravity of the you know, catastrophic failure of U.S. leadership at home and abroad? Yes, I think we will. And we should, I hope. Obviously, some of it will depend on the outcome in the election. It, clearly, if the president is reelected and don't see significant shifts in Congress, you may not see much appetite for that commission to come anytime soon or at all. That's less of a partisan statement than more of a, you know, fact that, you know, certainly there's been uh, different uh, views coming out of the White House about the quality of the performance of the U.S. And to some degree, at, at least uh, from what I've heard from congressional sources, there hasn't been a public departure from that. We had a conversation last week with Tom Cole, Congressman Cole, a Republican, powerful Republican from Oklahoma, and where unprompted he came forward with this with this argument. We have got we have no choice but to do 9-11 commission. This is such a catastrophic failure at multiple levels. We can't pull our punches. We have to admit it and come to terms with it and figure out how to move ahead. And so I think your report will provide some some good grounding in trying to move folks forward. And I I understand why you would try and skirt controversy in the language that you'd use in this in the midst of things are so highly polarized. This is a bipartisan effort in the midst of a crisis in which the polarization in our electoral cycle, but also the more deeply polarized a situation where many of the Republicans don't want to open themselves up necessarily to attack from Trump at this particular moment in time. We've seen this pattern and this sensitivity in, in our own work, which is certainly understandable. In terms of your recommendations, you're calling for the appointment of a senior focal point person in the White House, a senior ambassador coordinator at state, UN senior global health security coordinator at the UN. So coordination is a big theme. And that gets to, you know, given the gravity of the problems we've seen institutionally, is that going to be enough, appointing a few coordinators? It won't be, um, which is why the report definitely has more than that. But I think it's important that there be that the issue become elevated. Clearly, for decades now, we have talked about global health security as being a national and global security matter, but we have not funded it like it was. And we have not prepared 
uh, or had the capacity to implement plans like it was a priority. And that's really what needs to change. One element of that is having it be elevated to be an issue at the venues which can move forward that action. So that includes the White House. That includes more senior official engaged on this at the State Department to move forward. And it includes not just having the WHO lead the UN response, that there are all the non-health elements that you need to see something out of the United Nations. And we've gotten very little out of the United Nations in this crisis. But the report goes beyond that. Uh, the report is quite clear that we cannot be prisoner to a circumstance of relying on nations self-reporting of outbreaks for our safety in the future. So the report talks about the creation of a sentinel network, a hospital-based sentinel network to regularly, regularly report hospitalization data that can be collated and, and assessed and shared with participating public health agencies. What that does is, for instance, in this case, you know, China, it's become quite clear, was seeing hot people were being hospitalized at a minimum throughout December, but did not get picked up or at least did not get reported uh, internationally. So being able to pick up those trends earlier might have made a difference in this case. It also makes us less reliant on transparency of the affected government to do that. We also talk about beyond the UN that global health security can't be prisoner to geopolitics in the way it was before. So we don't just rely on a structure at the UN and having somebody in the secretary general's office. We talk about the creation of a coalition of interested G7 and G20 members to move forward Again, the non-health elements of the response to a pandemic. And this is your Global Health Security Coordination Committee that that's proposed, right. that's which right. is new and different. And tell us a bit more. How would that how how could that be stood up and what might it look like? Are there any analogs you can point to or as a mechanism, as a coordination mechanism? Absolutely. I mean, to some degree, it is a more robust form of the Global Health Security Initiative, right? The idea is to pull together interested member states to elevate it to appropriate levels so that there is, first of all, would link to this data surveillance network, but it would also be able to mobilize all the other areas we haven't seen coordination in this crisis. So that includes what we have seen on trade restrictions and hoarding supplies, uh, it includes what we have seen in terms of uh, some of the potential fights emerging around uh, the sharing of, uh, of vaccines. It includes also the issues of how to fund and respond to fragile states that are teetering uh, as a result of the economic crisis here. So it moves beyond just simply the pub international public health response to those, to those other elements. By having it not at the G7 and the G20 and having it be a structure you create, again, a lot of this is in recognition of the fact that those bodies have to some degree been prisoner to geopolitics in this crisis. And by moving it forward with a like-minded set of institution, it allows you to be able to mobilize action should all these other institutions fail the way that we have. What's been the response on a bipartisan level to this. Have you been able to brief members of the Trump administration, Republicans in Congress, Democrats in Congress, members of the Biden team? What's, what's been the response? 
Great question. So to be continued, the report just came out late Thursday. So we are, of course, in the midst of our briefings now, but we've reached out to we're in the process of scheduling briefings uh, with executive branch agencies and the White House on the report. We are also doing briefings of members of Congress. So you can imagine there's quite a bit going on in both of those uh, places, currently three weeks before a presidential and congressional election. But um, we are we have those scheduled this week. So we'll see what the response is so far in terms of the broader public. It's been positive. You know, I think we're we came out the right time. The media coverage is focused on, you know, the, the, the recommendations around acting quickly. You know, they, which which is an easy thing for the media to report. But if you're trying to get across your message to a broader public and really to get your message across to, you know, the, the key policy audience, what are the, you know, two or three key takeaways that you want to get first and foremost? Yeah. So I think first and foremost to the general public, the key takeaway is that this may be a hundred year pandemic, but there's no reason why it'll be another hundred years before the next one arrives. So a major focus of the report is to make it clear to people that a next pandemic is potentially imminent. We need to be thinking about that now uh, and drawing lessons from this now, why there's potential for action and that this result wasn't inevitable, either at the global or the national level. That preparedness did make a difference, that you have seen a difference in states that particularly those that had been affected by SARS or other recent epidemics did respond better because they put those lessons into practice when they uh, responded to the current one. And then to make it clear that we do need to have structures and resources set up so that we are not prisoner to the same failings. But I agree uh, with your premise of your question that it's a lot easier to make people understand containment than it is response. And, you know, one of the things I'm proud of in the report, which you don't often see a, in a internationally focused institution like the council, is there is an extended conversation about the need to protect vulnerable members of the U.S. society, whether it be elderly or uh, marginalized or black, Latinx and other groups that have done essential workers that have done particularly struggled in the midst of this pandemic. So there's an extended con conversation here how these are not just matters of social justice, although that they are. But we have to start seeing these issues as part of the investments that can make us safer, because that's that's what this pandemic has revealed about us, that it is important that we have that. If you get, you know, your 15 minutes in the room with the top people in the Trump administration right now, what do you tell them? So I think there's an appetite, clearly, because there have been proposals within the Trump administration. What comes next and how do we engage on global health security? So. I think that's the premise for this conversation is what, you know, now that there is the energy in the room, where do we move, uh, move this forward? How do we make ourselves safer? And the report has, I think, recommendations that aren't partisan. I mean, I think they're, they're common sense, frankly, that we do need to have other sources of data and a venue to potentially move those forward, that the U.S. does require coordination and needs to remain engaged in the world. 
So, Tom, is there a message? I mean, I know your argument about let's take the legacy of the global health security agenda and let's build on that and have something much more robust and muscular and deal with a wider variety of issues. And let's call that the Global Health Security Coordination Committee. Let's try and insulate it from geopolitics. I get that. I also get the the surveillance network as an initiative. If we can't get IHR, the International Health Regulations, modified to give WHO inspection authority, and we can't get, and they're not going to have their own intel capacity, then this is an answer to that problem. And perhaps we could create a network where hospitals and other facilities are willing and able to share their data and not be suppressed by their governments, either at a provincial or national level from doing that. But the geopolitics remain terribly important and the leadership failures have remained very important. We, we see the Security Council paralyzed. We see the G7 and G20 ineffectual and paralyzed on these matters. What's the answer uh, in this report in terms of trying to crack the, the, the core problem that the highest levels of world leadership have, have not been able to come to terms with this? Of course, the U.S.-China confrontation is at the center of all of this. Yeah, so I think that's accurate. And the U.S. the report does talk about the need for increased U.S.-China engagement. In particular, it talks about the withdrawal of our much of our scientific diplomatic infrastructure with China over the years and the consequences that has had. So I think that's real. The report does talk about investing and remaining engaged in these international structures for coordination, but it is also, I think, fairly realistic in recognizing that we also need uh, supplementary structures like this surveillance network like this coalition, this coordination committee, to be able to move forward should we uh, be unable to mobilize those multilateral institutions. The fact of the matter is on inspection, on some of the broader reforms to the international health regulations, these are not new. People have been talking about these elements of these for quite some time and states have resisted. You know, we saw to some extent similar circumstances after SARS where you had a government also be slow to report and non-transparent. Uh, you know, there's a fairly extended history on the international sanitary regulations before this. I think at some point we need to remain in those systems and invest in them, but we also recognize there needs to be a system to support them. On the issue on the surveillance network, one thing I would point out, we have this on famine. Um, we have this in other areas where we have stood up structures to report alerts to the broader nations so that they can respond to it and have uh, triggered action um, so we're not late and they're less dependent on international structures. On something like a coordination committee, of course, the G20 was stood up in response to the financial crisis with a coalition of states to coordinate on financial measures. There are elements of this that we've, we've seen before. We need to see it on uh, pandemic preparedness. Okay, Tom, we, we want to close the conversation by asking you to tell us what gives you greatest confidence and hope. You know, what makes you, this is a very constructive piece of work. It's very comprehensive, very thoughtful and balanced. What gives you the greatest hope that we can move forward with this agenda that you've laid out so carefully? So honestly, the group we pulled together, as you mentioned, was 
bipartisan in the midst of an election season where the pandemic has been at the center of that election and has been politicized. And we really were able to work as a group and put forward serious-minded, constructive, but relatively, particularly for a bipartisan committee, unvarnished conclusions of how to address this crisis. I think there's a moment here where we might have the ability to break the long-standing apathy we've had about global health security and, you know, the fact that we are having conversations like this at the council, the fact that you're having podcasts like you had with Representative Cole suggests that there is appetite for that conversation in this nation. And I'm hopeful that uh, with that will is a start to moving this forward. Thanks so much, Tom, and congratulations on the task force report. And we wish you all the best with that as you as you begin to disseminate it. And uh, thanks for taking time to be with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the interest. Thank you, Tom.